This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, this is Robert Hooks, and you are listening to TV Confidential, and keep doing it. Robertson with a reminder that the next edition of TV Confidential will premiere next week on the station at the usual time. Our guests will include singer-actress... Eileen Graff. Eileen Graff, one of the stars of Mr. Belvedere. We'll join us for that. In the meantime, Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen are with us via Skype as they bring us this week in TV history. Tony's segment is always brought to us by our friend uh, Stories Long, Southern California's longest-running, regularly performing live storytelling ensemble with live shows. Every Wednesday at the Art Parlor in Valley Village, as well as occasionally other nights of the week in the Art Parlor at Valley Village. Donna, are you still doing the fiction nights? Uh, I'm hoping to do one this fall. Okay, so hopefully they'll do one this fall. If Donna does put one together this fall, we'll let you know about it. In the meantime, for more information, storysalon.com, facebook.com forward slash storysalon. Tony, what do you have for us tonight? All right, so let's go to August 2nd, 1924. John Carroll O'Connor was born. We know him as Carroll O'Connor, as Archie Bunker. Yes, those were the days, although, and we're going to do a separate segment on this a little later on, but recently Woody Harrelson uh, made television history as the second actor to play Archie Bunker on television. That's right, they did their live on family slash Jefferson show, thanks to uh, a lot of help from Jimmy Kimmel. Norman Lear was a big part of that, and they redid two different episodes. Well, they did an episode of All in the Family, and they did an episode of The Jeffersons. And I thought Jimmy Kimmel's heart was in the right place in putting it together and in introducing both segments and the wraparounds and the in-between segments. He certainly seemed to take it seriously, at the very least. He seemed very psyched to be with Norman Lear that night. I mean, I mean, seriously, who wouldn't be? Norman Lear is like 95 years old and still going strong, working on shows like One Day at a Time and still very active in the industry. And I think it inspired a lot of people, a lot of people to tell their stories their way under their terms. I mean, you really, really have to give this guy credit. He changed television. A lot of people take credit for being able to say that, but Norman Lear really did turn things around, twist things around, uh, especially from the 60s. He came in right after the rural purge. I think it was George Lindsay that said that CBS canceled everything with a tree in it. Well, you know, the other thing, and we'll jump into Carol O'Connor in a second, but I've had so many conversations with so many people saying, you can't do this today. And... Uh, if anything benefits from what Jimmy Kimmel tried to accomplish, I think I think you can do this today. I mean, it's a little different. I'd say the only thing that you'd have trouble with today is maybe the pace would be a little different because All in the Family was something that was often in the bunker's living room and maybe in their kitchen. 
on occasion you would go to Kelsey's bar, you might go to another location, but a lot of times everything happened either after work or on a Sunday. So these they were having the dinner conversations that people have, they were doing all that. Uh, now jumping into Carol O'Connor, when Carol O'Connor got the gig, he made sure that Norman Lear had his return ticket to Italy. He was living in Italy. Mm -hmm. He saw the script, he loved the script, and he thought, this will not work on American television. He had his exit strategy already planned. And as I recall, they had already done at least, well, I, I believe he was not the first choice to play Archie. I think Mickey Rooney was, and I don't remember whether they filmed anything. Uh, there were three All in the Family pilots, as yeah. I believe. Yeah. One was called Those Were the Days, and I think the other one was called Justice for All. And because originally the character was Archie Justice. Archie Justice, and I believe in one of the pilots with Carol O'Connor, Tim McIntyre played Mike. Was he Mike? Because there was one version where he was Irish, he wasn't Polish. Well, let's put it this way. Tim McIntyre played Meathead in one of the first pilots. So you, yeah. So yeah, in an earlier version, I think Gloria was always called Gloria. The yeah. house looked a little different. There was a Lionel character in the uh, pilot, in the early version of the pilot. It wasn't Michael Evans originally, but you had uh, some bits there. The look was a little different, but yeah, like I said, I know in one version, the Mike character was Irish and uh, they made him Polish as by the time Rob Reiner got involved with that. No, weren't the Constance always Carol O'Connor and... Gene Stegel. And they were in all three pilots. It was, there was a revolving door with the Mike and Glorias. And I also agree with you, it would be difficult to do this show as a network series. I do think, and I think we can look to the success of One Day at a Time, Tony and Donna. If someone were to do... All in the Family as a weekly series, I think it could be done as a limited edition cable show. I agree with you. Or one of the streaming services, I think it could be easily done now. And, th and two years ago, I wouldn't have said that. Here would be the other question. Would you actually want to do it before a live audience? Ah. Well, because the original version was before live audience, and then they eventually... As uh, how did they close it? Is it, it was re performed in a studio before a live response. Uh -huh. They basically took the audience reaction from one day at a time. So while the audience was getting settled at one day at a time, they would play the All in the Family episode. I think later Archie Bunker's place and got the honest audience reaction from the one day at a time audience. So they were not doing the show in front of a live audience after a few years. Interesting. They, yeah, they did not. You know, Barney Miller did not shoot. Yeah, they like, never did. They never did. And I think just from a creative standpoint, they wanted to be able to do stuff a little bit more um, creatively and not have a live audience there. Barney Miller used to go until like 3 in the morning sometimes. So they, And Barney Miller had a laugh track. Barney Miller had a laugh track. All the family had, yeah, and they had some weird thing. When you see the later shows, Carol O'Connor mentions it, but it was a live response. So it was basically showing it to the one day at a time audience, recording their reactions, their honest reactions, and putting it into the episode. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a 
happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen are with us via Skype as we take a look at the legacy of Norman Lear and All in the Family on the occasion of what would have been Carol O'Connor's 95th birthday as part of this week in TV history. Circling back to your question, if we were to do a reimagining of All in the Family, would it be done? Could it be done? Should it be done in front of a live audience? Again, I would point to the Netflix One Day at a Time, which was done in front of a live audience in the tradition of the Norman Lear show. And I think it would work well. And we've said this before. The reason why I think it would work as a cable show or a streaming show versus a network show is... When we've said this before, with cable and streaming, you make 13, you know they're going to air. Whereas with network, you make 13, you don't know whether one will air or all 13 will air. So, Okay, I have another question. Sure. If it were to be done today, would it be done present day or would it be a period piece? Well, that's a good question. And much has been written about Ken Levine had a very interesting piece on his blog, Hollywood and Levine, speculating on whether they would make Archie a Trump supporter or if they were to do a show from the era. As it happens, the Jimmy Kimmel-produced ABC special performed a script from the original All in a Family, so it was essentially a period piece. But if they were to do and all on the family modern day. It would be very interesting how they would approach the Archie character. No, no, Archie is based on a character uh, from an English sitcom called Till Death Do Us Part, and then later it became For Better or For Worse. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was done by Alf Garnett. And if you ever find, uh, I don't know if they exist on YouTube, I have seen a couple of these episodes. The character, the Archie equivalent in the UK, was much harsher. And I know we've talked about it in the past. The look of the show was grittier. You have this patriarch, basically, I'm going to say it straight out, calling his daughter a stupid bitch. And back in the 70s and 80s, because of standards and practices, you were only allotted a certain number of times you could say a word like that. Yes. We also have to look that All in the Family was an 8 o'clock show on a network. And the uh, the networks were getting so heavy, heavy, heavy pressure to establish the family hour. Yeah. And it was established. And Norman Lear was fighting that because he couldn't have certain episodes of All in the Family in the 8 o'clock hour under the rules of the family hour. When did the family hour go away? I'm thinking it went away. 77, 78 is in my head. We can look it up. But the network still kind of kept like a voluntary established, you know, that we're not going to do this in the 8 o'clock hour and we're not going to do a little bit more in the 9 o'clock and a little bit more in the 10 o'clock. But I think one of the issues that got pushed was the vasectomy episode of All in the Family, which CBS was saying, you can't do that at 8 o'clock. You could do it at 9 o'clock. You know, so Norman Lear certainly wasn't going to have a one week he could do something in the eight o'clock hour. It was accepted. And then the next week, oh, you you're approaching this subject matter. We need to do that in the nine o'clock hour. But yeah, anyway, there were certain elements that you could not have in the eight o'clock hour. Norman Lear was dead set against that. He saw that that was you know, completely against freedom of speech. And uh, he fought it and they, they won. They actually did win. 
And uh, so I think that was a, a huge deal. Going back to Carol O'Connor, there, you know, Carol O'Connor did have his feuds with Norman Lear as well, creative differences. In fact, there were several episodes where he was not around. Uh, Archie went to a convention. Which brings up another thing I wanted to make sure we cover as we remember Carol O'Connor on the occasion of his 95th birthday as part of this week in TV history is that while there had been famous examples of actors doing walkouts over contract disputes, the number of successful walkouts you could, up to Carol O'Connor, you could probably count on one hand yes, and maybe one finger, uh, one or two fingers. The only other really successful example of an actor standing up to the studio was James Garner, but he had to take them to court. Whereas Carol O'Connor, that was played out over a matter of weeks while production was being done. And what had happened before was, A, if the other example I'm thinking of is Clint Walker in the late 50s when he sat out for a few weeks in order to you know, try to renegotiate his contract for Cheyenne. What happened with Warner Brothers is they replaced him with another actor, which took away some of his leverage, and the show did not lose anything in the ratings, which took away whatever leverage Clint Walker had left. And so that was always the risk an actor took whenever they tried to stage a walkout. Now, in the case of Carol O'Connor, the example that I think of, there's like a four or five episode stretch, I'm thinking like around 74 or 75, where he missed like the first five shows of the season because that was in the middle of his walkout. And I don't remember how the numbers went ratings-wise, but uh, it's been told many times he beat the system and he was able to cash in on that and negotiate what I believe was the highest contract for a network series star at the time. And in that respect, he sort of laid the groundwork for other actors to gauge their value when their contract ran out and do the same thing. One of the most famous examples of that was within five years. O'Connor mentored Larry Hagman when he staged his walkout in the summer of 1980 at the height of the Who Shot JR stuff. We can't forget that Red Fox did the same thing on Sanford and Son. That is correct. How was that handled? Uh, he, uh, Fred went to St. Louis and Whitman Mayo, who played Grady, was kind of running the junk business. And he wasn't Red Fox, but Whitman Mayo brought his A-game in those episodes because the idea of, you know, Fred was taking a trip to St. Louis and Grady just kind of took over. And it looks like they told the episodes to kind of justify Fred's absence and Grady being there. They probably retooled some episodes that were intended for Red Fox, but there was one uh, really good one with an ex-girlfriend of Fred's who thinks, you know, got so drunk, thought Grady was Fred. But he did an excellent job in those episodes. And there was one that was a marijuana episode, which was hysterical. And you look at it now, and it's, it was quite relevant even today. But Damon Wilson was also considering walking out at the same time Red Fox was over some uh, issues. I think he wanted to do it out of solidarity to Red Fox. And Red Fox says, no, you stay with the show. I'm taking the risk here. No need for both of us to take the risk. And... Um, Demond Wilson, uh, his nickname on the show uh, for a while was Demand Wilson because he was constantly <laughs> <laughs> The show was retooled and it became Samford 
Yeah, uh, Demond Wilson was not part of it because he was too demanding. I guess Fred Fox can get away with it, but Demond Wilson wasn't. Yeah, he w- he was gone for several episodes. Whitman Mayo did such a good job, as I recall, that when Red Fox came back from his contract dispute and resumed starring in the in Sanford and Son, Whitman Mayo was rewarded with a show of his own, yeah. which did not do very well, although I think part of the reason why uh, Grady did not do well is that NBC put it on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock opposite the Waltons, which was, which was a death time slot. But fortunately for Whitman Mayo, when Grady came and went, Sanford and Sarum welcomed him back with open arms. Yeah, the storyline, he was going to move, I think, to Brentwood or Westwood, because his daughter was uh, married to a UCLA coach, and he was going to move in with his family. So he would not be that far from Fred and Lamont anyway. You know, it's not like they relocated him to the other side of the country or something. Yeah, but Whitman Mayo did a, did a great job with that, so I, I think that has to be pointed out. And I'm sure there's a few other examples of people who did that. Carol, I also want to mention, he was in consideration for the skipper on Gilligan's Island. Really? He was. But I guess he lacked the teddy bear quality that they needed for the character. Plus, I, th- uh, I think, at least in terms of television, I don't remember him doing a lot of comedic roles. No, he didn't. Oh, he did an episode of That Girl, one of my favorite shows, where he played an Italian opera singer, is in New York, who, of course, falls for Anne. And in this day of Me Too, I love looking back at that episode. (laughs) I'll have to look that up. It sounds like after he was considered or auditioned for The Skipper, he he was given more opportunities to do comedy. I know around 64, 65, he and Barry Morse did the only outright comic episode of The Outer Limits, where he and Barry Morse played aliens from the future who do what's called a controlled experiment on human beings. And they had some sort of stop-action device, and you were able to see two or three different outcomes over the same situation. And as they're controlling the outcomes of these poor human beings who are unwitting parts of their controlled experiment, Barry Morse and Carol O'Connor are having a jolly good time playing off of each other on camera, so... And he did, uh, later on, he, uh, well, he did, of course, In the Heat of the Night, yep. and he did have a dispute on that show. Uh, the network was considering replacing him with uh, Rod Steiger. Really? Yeah. Oh. They were considering replacing him with Rod Steiger. Now, I don't know if Rod Steiger would take over the role of Chief Gillespie or if he would be somebody else just taking over the role. But he did have some conflicts, and there was talk at that time about replacing him. Well, you mentioned In the Heat of the Night. I remember... When that show was first being developed, I wasn't sure whether it would work because both Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier were so iconic in the original movie. Any attempt to do it on television would be watered down. It would be just another example of a television adaptation of a popular movie that doesn't work because of the confines of television. But obviously, Carol O'Connor proved everybody wrong with that. That show ran about... Somewhere between uh, seven and ten years, if I remember. They had a good run. They were on NBC, Mm -hmm. and then they went to CBS. Dick Martin directed a bunch of episodes. Mm -hmm. 
you don't associate him directing this type of drama. No, no. But, but good show. It was a very good show, and as long as we're looking at the legacy of Carol O'Connor, this is something I just learned within the past couple of months. Denise Nicholas, who all of us immediately think of in terms of Room 222, uh-huh. But Denise Nicholas, she was one of the stars of In the Heat of the Night. And towards the end of that show's run, she she wrote about a half a dozen shows. And that was the start of her career as a writer. And she's since written an acclaimed historical novel. But she points to Carol O'Connor as the person who really encouraged her to write. And one of her mentors as a writer which is something we don't always think of, but Carol O'Connor was very, I would say he was as committed to the writing of that show as Norman Lear was, even though Carol O'Connor, to my knowledge, did not write any episodes of... No, there is a story that there was a second act that wasn't working, and between Carol O'Connor and Rob Reiner, they had an idea of how that second act should go, they both had the same idea. They decided, let's just give this a try. And they improvised the second act. So, I mean, I don't know how much of that has become legend, but uh, there was, yeah, one story that yeah, just the script was not working for the second half. Uh, I, I hope it's a true story. I mean, I don't want to see writers get put out of work, but I hope, you know, it was an interesting, because they both had, I would say, uh, and if you ask Rob Reiner, Rob Reiner would say that Carol O'Connor's Politics were to the left of him, which is, <laughs> you know, the first of all, you are so, you're, it's hard to believe that the man who became famous for playing Archie Bunker, then later Chief Gillespie, was a, a real hardcore liberal, and like I said, potentially even more to the left of, of, of Rob Reiner. So I, I do also want to mention that um, he did endorse Tom Bradley for governor, so he did do some campaign ads. I remember that later on in the 80s. But in the 70s, he did a PSA about bigotry. And he talked about how, you know, basically telling young people, don't be like Archie Bunker. So Archie Bunker's bigotry has hurt. And he said something like he spoiled relationships, personal relationships were damaged. And and Archie, in many cases, they had spoiled that relationship. And basically, you know, kind of nudging, huh? You know, just don't, you know, be this way. And then later on, after the death of his son, Hugh, he did PSAs uh, about, you know, if you have a kid who's on drugs, do what you need to do to get them off drugs. And also, Carol O'Connor was a good friend of Martin Sheen. And when Charlie Sheen had a lot of issues, I should say, when Charlie Sheen had a lot of issues in his younger days... Carol O'Connor was actually a very good friend with Martin Sheen and just trying to coach him on, you know, how to handle the problem. Which goes back to one of the things we said before. His impact as an actor, his legacy extends in many ways above and beyond All in the Family and In the Heat of the Night. Yes. Child of Television at blogspot.com. Child of Television at blogspot.com. Also, storyslon.com. Donna's four part novel series is not complete. Yes, it is. The last book, Fall Again Reunion, was published a few months ago. You'll see where the story finally ends. And to find out how the story begins and ends, go to fallagainseries.com. I'll be Donna. We'll see you both next time.
next time. A reminder that the news and documentary Emmy Awards will be streamed live on Tuesday, September 24th on emmyonline.tv, emmyonline.tv, as well as other platforms. That'll do it for our program this week. Folks, Ed Robertson, my husband, Tony Figueroa, Donna Allen, Phil Grace, Greg Airborne, our producer, Chris Corman. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.